Amen. Uh, thank you, Josh. Samantha. I want to invite you back to the book of Hebrews. This week we're going to be in chapter 12 of Hebrews. And I want to uh, remind you of uh, what we're what we're covering over these, these few weeks. As we lead up to Christmas, we're uh, learning more about Jesus, our long-expected Jesus, who is prophet, priest, and king. And so we have covered, we've covered Jesus as our prophet. We've covered Jesus as our priest. Last week, Pastor Cal did this, and then this week we will talk about Jesus as our coming king. And uh, then next week, hopefully, we'll wrap it all up in a, a more... Uh, I don't know, a, a built-up service for Christmas. So we're going to have some extra elements next week. I do want to mention um, uh, our, our offering this month. I want to emphasize to you the, the need of giving to Lottie Moon and the, the blessing it is to mission work around the world. And so we have a few more weeks to give to this we have set that goal at $2,000, and in your bulletin, you see we have a good ways to go. So I want to ask you to give sacrificially, and I want you to be motivated in your giving by the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Uh, let's look to him as the text tells us today in Hebrews 12. Now, Opening to Hebrews 12, you need to know where the writer has been. You know, uh, from a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the fact that the writer is trying to, to communicate to people who are uh, possibly near believing. He's trying to get them to go ahead and cross the line. Go ahead and give your life to Jesus. Go ahead and surrender because he is better than all these things, all these types and shadows that you know about. And so he's trying to persuade them, and the progression of the book is such that he lays out each one of these types and shadows and shows just how much better Jesus is. And now he gets to the end of the book, and we're approaching some very practical stuff. Now, chapter 12 obviously comes after chapter 11. You know what chapter 11 is? The Hall of Faith is what we have come to call it. The Hall of Faith. And so we have all these Old Testament characters, uh, real people that endured real things. And um, as we read about them in chapter 11, we get to see, in many cases, exactly what their relationship to Jesus was. And so the writer is telling us in this hall of faith that all of these people were awaiting this coming king. And then in chapter 12, he starts to delineate the kingdom. And specifically, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom, as we read from Daniel, that will last and it will, it will, it will overthrow. It will, it will literally crush all the earthly kingdoms, all the earthly kings. So this hall of faith, these saints of old, they endured awaiting the coming king. And now we get to talk about the king and his kingdom. The text today gives us an image, a familiar image of a race, and it calls us to endurance. And just as those people in chapter 11 endured, I will tell you, church, now is the time 
for endurance. Now is the time for endurance. We understand the tension that we live in as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, that there are things that he has done that are final. Our victory is final. And yet, just as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we don't yet see all things in subjection to him. So we're not quite there to the end yet. Our salvation is final and what he's done is final. Yet the fruit of that is still working itself out. And so you've heard me talk about the, uh, the tension being like an already and not yet. Like we have the spirit, but as Ephesians says, the spirit is almost like the guarantee or the down payment of something that is greater. We have holiness, but we are on this trajectory, this this road of sanctification. So we are holy, but we're not yet completely holy in one sense. You look through the New Testament, you see these realities, the already and the not yet. And I hope you feel that tension. It's not hard to recognize that tension in 2020 and 2021. We're on the heels of we're on the heels of some of the craziest days that any of us have seen, especially me. In my life, I've not seen anything like this before, but I don't want to ruin your new year just yet. But on the other side of this Christmas season is another year another set of whatever kind of elections we have another year of news cycles another variant another conflict another set of challenges you won't be able to go into that unless you are prepared to endure believer we got a lot of people hanging it up these days they're giving up they're they're giving in they're letting the pressures that surround them dictate the things that they do, even dictate their worship or their faith. It dictates their evangelism, their mission. It dictate, dictates their, their willingness to make disciples. People are giving up and we must endure. So I want to give you that message today. The theme this morning, the king's people endure for his unshakable kingdom until he comes again. Now, I want to read uh, verses 1 and 2 and 28 and 29. Sorry, Freddie, I did that backwards. Romans 12, or excuse me, Hebrews 12. Romans 12 is good too. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's chapter 11, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now go to the end of the chapter, verse 28. Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray once more. Father, uh, we do ask for your blessing upon our time that you have made clear your word. 
that we would be able to see Jesus so clearly and respond by looking to him in faith and worshiping him for who he is, our king. Receive this, Father, this worship by all your people according to what Jesus has done. We pray in his name, amen. So we need to know right here, the the verses in between the start and the end describe the kingdom that he's talking about. It describes what endurance in the kingdom looks like in practice. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to cover the entire chapter 12, but we're going to look at this start and finish and hopefully hopefully get some some, uh, uh, groundwork for endurance in the faith. So again, the king's people endure for his unshakable kingdom until he comes again. I want to give you two aspects of endurance this morning, two aspects of endurance. First, gospel focus, the essence of endurance. Gospel focus, the essence of endurance. Right there at the end of verse 2, you see it says that Jesus, upon completing the work of the gospel, the good news, And all of this is implied, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's it's all implied in the cross and despising the shame. And he is, it says here, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we recognize him as having this kingly status, this royal position. He's given all authority, reigning over what is and what will be, reigning over the already and the not yet. And we are awaiting the day, and he, you know your Bible, right? He's awaiting the day. When the Father gives the word, and at that word, he'll return and wipe away every earthly king and kingdom. We're called to endure in light of that. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So endure. Gospel Focus And the image here of a race, it serves us well. We need to be careful, though, not to do too much with the image that is to go beyond what is intended. So, for instance, as we read, the the Christian life is like a race. We don't want to compare it and then draw the conclusion that it's some kind of competition with other runners. We understand that the Christian life is a race, and you need to race so as to win the prize. You need to race because you're sort of racing against the clock, all right? One thing I like about playing golf is you're not actually in direct competition with somebody. Really, you're in competition with yourself. Now, I may be motivated by the guy playing next to me, but you know when it comes down to it? I want to shoot a better score this time than I did last time. And as long as I'm pressing on getting better, then I know my score is going to get better. So we need to understand the race for what it is. We don't want to draw these conclusions that we are in competition with one another. So let's run the race set before us. I want you to note a few things for gospel-focused endurance. First off, as he says, take note of the finishers. Take note of the finishers. 
He says, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, this multitude is not simply a bunch of spectators. I know you've probably heard this preached a half a dozen times or more. I know I've heard it preached that many times. Don't get the idea that all these people that have gone before these Old Testament saints, people that have gone before you, don't get the idea that they're like sitting in bleachers saying, all right, all right, Sam, get it going, Sam. You can do it, Sam. That's not what's going on here. In fact, all of those people have run their race and they're satisfied with Jesus right now. And they're looking at Jesus right now. And you know who they're cheering on? Jesus and his glory. So the reason they're mentioned here is not to say, hey, you got a lot of fans and they hope you do well. No. They're the ones who can say with Paul, I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And this is just the start of the list. You could add a lot more people to your list, couldn't you? Just go through the people that have been in your life who've been faithful to the gospel, faithful to the church, faithful in worship of the Lord Jesus. These are finishers. Keep in mind that these finishers are not the essence of endurance. They are simply proof that it can be done. It shows that we are not given a special pass, that we are not a special case. You've been given a race to run, and no, it's not exactly like the person next to you. Your race looks a little different. It's unique. God has set it before you on purpose, and you recognize that some races are shorter than others. You know, this week we're aware of a young man been married five months, and just like that, his life is taken from him in a car accident. A faithful servant of the Lord, 20 years old, he had a shorter race than many of us. Some races are shorter than others. Some races seem harder than others. Yet, you know what? We all finish the race by doing the exact same things. He tells us. The writer continues. He says, take off hindrances. Secondly. So take note of the finishers and then take off the hindrances. He says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I'm convinced as I read this and interpret this that the writer here has two kinds of hindrances in mind. And first kind of hindrance is that unnecessary hindrance. It may not be the sinful kind, but it is that unnecessary kind. If you get the picture of a race, you get the, you get the image of, of the runner. At the beginning of the race, you watch the Olympics. You've seen, you've seen track and field events to get an idea. What do they do before they get started? They, come, they get started. They come out. They, they are, are fully dressed in sweats or something. And they proceed to remove the articles of clothing that will make it hard for them to run. And then they essentially run in what looks like you know, underwear. Let's just be honest, right? Think about swimmers. It's not just clothes. Like swimmers will actually remove their body hair so that they can proceed in the race as fast as possible. Now, you'll hear me right. Don't leave and say, hey, the preacher said I need to shave my entire body if I'm going to run this Christian race. No. No. No, that's not what I'm saying. You understand that they have laid aside these things in order to more efficiently run their race. 
This is what the writer is telling us here. The ideal situation is to lay aside the stuff that will slow you down. So, casting off unhelpful weight, unhelpful baggage, should be a regular and recurring activity for the Christian. I don't need to tell you that the Christian life is not a sprint. There's going to be times when you got to, you got to recuperate, you got to replenish, you got to get some water, right? You got to refuel and you got to take off the stuff that you have accumulated over your Christian life. There are things that come into your life and you got to remove them in order to run the race. But if you're not willing to cast off those things, those unnecessary things, then you're in for a long, hard trick. And so I ask you, are you hanging on to something that's got you tripping up or got you slowing down? Are you hanging on to something that is unnecessary for the race? And this could be a number of different things. You got some obstacles coming up, and I guarantee if you don't lose those unnecessary things, you're likely going to take a hard fall. But as he says here, there are weights and sins. Now, some interpreters think that that he's just saying weight and sin as a uh, meaning the same thing. And that's what I just said. Like, I think it's two different things. I think there are weights, and then there are weights that are sins. And so some hindrances to your running may actually evolve into those besetting sins that he refers to here. Commentator Linsky says that the sins that are mentioned here are those that we are prone to, in his words, because of temperament, weakness, environment, etc. So the writer is actually calling us to consider the things that we are tempted toward. He's not just listing off sins. He's saying, hey, there is a particular group of sins likely that really characterizes your life. And he's saying, you need to be aware of these so you can constantly cast these things off. And we recall here again, you don't get special treatment because of your particular temptations and sins. Your temptations are common to mankind. And so your sins are not excused. So whether it's uncontrollable anger or sexual immorality, you can't run with that sin. Whether it's dominating fear or arrogant pride, you can't run with that sin. Whether it's bitterness or jealousy, you can't run with that sin. And you know that sin that the Holy Spirit is probably bringing to your mind right now. Maybe you already knew about it or maybe you're hearing it from him for the first time. You can't run the race with that sin. It's killing you. Sucking the life out of you. It's taking your eyes off the prize. It's paralyzing you. You know, something we used to do to prank people when I was younger. I hadn't seen this done in forever. But you know, somebody's sitting down and you go up behind them in their chair and you reach under the chair and you tie their shoestrings together. Have you ever done that to somebody? Yeah, me neither. No. 
Just kidding. Uh, you know what happens, right? That person gets up and they attempt to take a step and they can't and then they just fall over. This is exactly what you're doing to yourself when you retain all those weights and sins. I'm going to run the race, but I'm going to hang on to this baggage. And then you can't make any progress in the faith. You can't make any progress in the kingdom. You are hurting yourself. So the writer says, you're not going to be able to run the race with these things. Lay them aside. Take off the hindrances. And thirdly, he says, take hold of Christ's work. Take hold of Christ's work. We get this, man, one of the most beautiful statements, I think, in all the scriptures. He says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. Jesus is our prize. He is what we get to enjoy when the race is over yet. I don't want you to get the idea that he's just sort of down there at the finish line somewhere. According to his own words, he says, I'm right here with you. You remember he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you have the opportunity to look to Jesus right here and now for the help you need, for the power you need, for the endurance that you need. This looking to Jesus, this is not a glance. This is not take a, take a look at Jesus and then, and then focus on all your steps. This is not take a look at Jesus and then figure out what you need to do. No, this is, this is a gaze. This is eyes fixed on Jesus. I'll, for the rest of my life, I'll remember those two doors at the back of this sanctuary and probably into eternity because when I'm looking at those doors, I'm envisioning the Savior. I'm envisioning his work. Y'all probably wonder why I look back there so much. It's because you distract me sometimes <laughs> from worshiping Jesus while I preach. So that's what I'm envisioning. I'm looking to Jesus The writer says, looking to Jesus, fix your eyes on him, your gaze upon him. Don't take the glances, look at him. You need to be so fixated on Christ as the one who accomplished redemption that all the distractions fall away as quickly as they come. You need to be so focused on Christ and his redeeming work that every temptation is like a passing shadow in the periphery of the race being run. Take hold of Christ's work because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is faith's founder. Faith is meaningless and powerless to save if it is not built solely upon Jesus' work at Calvary. We know this. We must know this in order to be saved. 
But he's not just the recipient of our faith. The Bible tells us. He is the, as some of the versions say, he is the author. He's the author of faith. He's the, he's the source of faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, talking about those, those Old Testament saints. He says, our fathers, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You know how they had faith? They got it from Christ. They drank upon him. You remember that father in Mark 9 with the afflicted son and he pleaded to Jesus. There's a reason that he pleaded to Jesus. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because he knew. He knew that faith was not simply something just conjured up inside of mankind, but it is granted from the divine. He is faith's founder, the source, the author, but he's also faith's finisher. He is faith's finisher. Some people make the error in the Christian life to see Jesus as simply a good example. Well, we ought to do these things because it's what Jesus did and we just do what he did. You know what happens though? You know what happens? If you look to Jesus simply as an example, then you're always going to be a failure. You're never going to measure up. If he's only your example, then you are in a bad situation, and you and I both know that we need far more than an example. We need a Savior. If Jesus, like this text tells us, is the finisher of your faith, then you are a victor. The heights of faith don't come as a result of your own effort. Jesus is the one that empowers each step, that replenishes all exhaustion, who keeps you from stumbling, who sustains you amid your weaknesses. And so Linsky proclaims, from start to finish, we need the divine Christ as the one who can fill us with faith, keep us in the faith, and finally crown our faith. And when you get to the finish, you get to that finish line, you'll look back and you'll see the journey all along was a journey of grace. Oh, you thought you did all that. Oh, oh, you thought you sanctified your own self. Oh, it's God's work to work and to will for his good pleasure. Faith's finisher. Here's what we can say. Man, I love preaching to you folks. Every week, every week, I, well, I won't say that. I am low uh, at the start of a lot of weeks. Low. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally low. And I dread, I dread the task in some ways of digging through scripture. And then I get into it and it's like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I am just on this ramp toward excitement to preach. 
And this morning I said it again to Kyle, I am so glad to be preaching from the New Testament. <laughs> hey, look, I love the Old Testament. You know I love Jeremiah, but I've had my time with Jeremiah. I need some other time now. But I love preaching to you folks. And here's what I want you to hear. You can endure because he endured. You can endure. What did he endure? The text tells us. The cross. He endured the cross. The punishment for your sin. The wrath of God. And why did he endure it? For the joy set before him. I want you to see this set before him. This is strategically placed by God in front of him. When he received the commission, he didn't, he didn't go into it thinking, well, I don't know what's going to happen. No, God said, here's what's going to happen if you fulfill this redemptive call that I've given you. So for the joy set before him, you know why he had joy? Because he was saving people like you and me. He had joy because he was looking toward that glorification after his suffering. He had joy because he was looking toward being a king over all believers. And this is why we celebrate the manger scene. Heaven's best left his privileged place at the father's side and being found in human form. He endured to the point of death, even death, death on a cross. And because of the joy set before him, he did not account shame, that shame before men. He did not account that as anything significant. And now Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our king reigns. You can endure because he endured. Take hold of his finished work. Focus on his gospel and you will endure. Secondly, second aspect of endurance as we see at the end of the chapter, grateful worship. We have gospel focus and we have grateful worship. Grateful worship is the evidence of endurance. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This interesting wording here, the key phrase is, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful. I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of this, but I want you to hear gratefulness or gratitude toward God generates worship that is pleasing to God. But with the loss of gratitude, worship is snuffed out. So think of it this way. Uh, gratefulness, thanksgiving, gratitude toward God is, is the flame to the fire. 
It's the flame to the fire. So this morning, as we've come to worship God together, I want you to know there is nothing lacking here. All you need is gratitude to worship God. All you need is gratitude this morning. So your worship today, get the flame, your worship today isn't lit up by just the right sermon or just the right song or just the right set of emotions. Your worship today is not set ablaze by the right circumstances or the right mood or the right lighting. Don't get distracted by all these unnecessary things and don't settle for imitation worship. You know, we got the flame to the fire. Sometimes I don't want to build a fire or maybe it's a little too warm, but it's wintertime. I'll turn on the TV and turn on the Yule log. Y'all got the Yule log? It's that channel either on Netflix or I don't even know if you can get it over, over the airwaves. But... Uh, Yule log. It looks like a fire. It sounds like a fire. It's not producing any heat. It's not heating up your home. It's just your TV. You turn on the Yule log and you sort of enjoy what appears to be that fire. It makes you feel like there's fire burning, but it's not actually burning. So I will tell you, today... And every day, don't settle for what only looks like worship. Set your heart and mind on all that God has granted according to his grace, and you'll discover the gratefulness needed to light the fire. Meditate upon the king's lavish gifts and worship the king. Grateful worship, we may say from these verses, is a response to the kingdom given. The kingdom given. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Receiving a kingdom. So the kingdom is ours as a gift from God. The kingdom is a gift from God. Get this idea in your head, okay? Um, we, got, we got Christmas season here. You're probably wrapping your gifts now. Uh, you get to that, that family room or whatever, you get the family together and you start giving each other gifts. Imagine, imagine if somebody gave you a gift and then you, you received that gift and then you were like, oh, I'm so glad that I received this gift. I am so glad. I'm so glad that I took it from you. I'm so glad that I made the right decision. Let me just pat myself on the back right now for receiving this gift from you. Hey, I'm going to write a thank you card to myself because I received this gift. He's talking about the kingdom as a gift, and you, nobody in their right mind would respond to receiving a gift by congratulating themselves or thanking themselves. They would thank the giver of the gift. The kingdom is, is granted to you. It's been given to you. You didn't earn anything. 
God gave you this gift. And so we respond with grateful worship because the kingdom is given to us as a gift. And then, furthermore, it's also a kingdom guaranteed. It's a kingdom given and it's a kingdom guaranteed. The text says it cannot be shaken. It is unshakable. And so because of the preceding verses, we're reminded that the things we see here and now will be shaken and they will fall. And the only thing that cannot be shaken is the kingdom of God. So why clamor for the things that don't last? Why run for prizes that spoil? Why labor for 15 minutes of fame? Believer, you have a king and a kingdom that will not fall, will not fail, but yet it will become more glorious as each moment passes. So run the race, endure for that kingdom for that king. It's the kingdom given. It's the kingdom guaranteed. And then we see grateful worship here finally is characterized by reverence and awe. You know, when the wise men and shepherds traveled their journey and they kneeled down in worship, they beheld the king of the universe with reverence and awe. If you know about the one we worship today, the king enthroned, the king who is coming again, then you know that there is nothing more awesome, nothing more worthy of our worship. However, if you're hearing about this king, this God, and your response is apathy, neglect, or refusal in regard to his worthiness, his awesomeness, then let verse 29 sink in, for our God is a consuming fire. There, there's, a, there's a bit of terror, like, a, like an undertone of these last verses that basically says, hey, if you're not going to respond to God in grateful worship, if you're not going to light that fire of worship, then you're going to be consumed by his fire. So, this morning, I don't think I need to persuade you anymore that you need endurance. I'm just trying to tell you that the only way you can endure is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. What he has done to save you. The fact that without him, you will absolutely fail. But with him, in him, you will finish. You will finish strong. As the Bible says, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing at the end of that race. So maybe this morning, you recognize that you need to come to the Lord God through Jesus Christ, his son, because he is the only way. You need to turn to him in faith, recognizing that he is both the author and perfecter of your faith. He's the founder and the finisher of your faith today. So respond to him. As we take a moment, we're going to let you respond to your heart, uh, confessing, repenting toward God, Take this moment, if you need to speak with me or Kyle, 
Uh, we're available, and then we'll continue responding to the Lord in worship. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning. Forgive us for the ways we approach you in worship, looking for things that please us, looking for ways to satisfy us. Forgive us when we make our church experience about us, but let us think upon the good news of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. Let us meditate upon this truth and so produce authentic worship. Let it create in us worship that is pleasing to you, Father. Holy Spirit, help us respond. Bring glory, we know you will, to the name of Jesus in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.